0: Many young people go to colleges and universities and leave their faith, or they have a major crisis in their faith. This is Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, Christian apologist, and scholar, Pat Zucharin. Today's program is part of a series on staying Christian in college. And whether you're going to college yourself, or maybe you have a child or a grandchild who's leaving the nest and going to the university, today's program is gonna be very informative. Here's Pat Zuckerin.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Yes, we have a special guest with us. We have Greg Grooms, who is in charge of a ministry there at the University of Texas at Austin, a fine public university, one of the biggest in the country. Greg there runs the Hill House. Tell us more about his ministry there. He's been working there on the campus of the University of Texas at Austin since 1994. He has five kids now who are on the university campus, and Greg worked with the Labrie Fellowship for 16 years, studying under Francis Schaeffer and his wife in Switzerland and also here in the United States. So, Greg, welcome to the show.
2: Pleasure to be here, Pat. Thanks for calling.
1: Well, we're talking about staying Christian in college, and Greg, we have some surveys from the Southern Baptists, from the Christian Post, from Colonia House, and others that report anywhere from 60 to 80% of students who claim to be Christian abandon their faith after four years of college. Why do you feel we're having such a high dropout rate?
2: a couple of factors involved. One has to do with what's happening at the university. One has to do with what's happening at home. At home, I don't think that most kids are getting uh, preparation for what they're actually going to face. Francis Schaefer used to say that most people catch their worldviews in the same way they get a cold, just by kind of unconscious contact. If anything, I think that that's uh, more prevalent today than it was 30 years ago when he wrote his last book. Kids have always come into college, I think, a little unprepared for what they're going to face. I think that they're less prepared now than they were 30 years ago. Part of it has to do with what's actually happening at the university. The kinds of difficulties that we would expect on campus uh, when I showed up at Tulane back in 1972 fell into a couple of categories. We had moral challenges. uh, This was kind of the end of the counterculture era, so we had drugs, sex, and rock and roll on one hand, and then we had intellectual challenges. And the intellectual challenges in the 70s were still kind of the critiques of Christianity that we would expect from what's called modernism. Christianity was not historical, it was not rational, it was not scientific, you know, and that if you wanted to defend your faith, you defended it reasonably and evidentially. That's still around to some degree, but it's gotten a little bit more complicated. What's called postmodernism approaches it from a radically different perspective now. The idea that any belief, not just Christianity, but even modern science, kind of roots its its thinking in what's true, what's rational, what's historical, they wouldn't bother that either. They would say in the end that a Christian student believes what he believes. Because he was raised in a Christian home, because he's had it easy as a 21st century American, because he speaks English, even, that it would be impossible for him to be any different. And if he tries to defend himself kind of rationally or evidentially, he'll be dismissed in a way that would never have been the case 30 years ago. So, you put a typical kid right out of high school, 18 years old, in that kind of situation, he gets hammered from one direction in a science class, another direction uh, in an English class, and he has no idea how to respond. Greg,
1: talk to us about how do you meet the challenge of postmodernism for the Christian student.
2: Well, more than ever, you have to prepare kids to think about why they believe what they believe. You step into a campus here at the University of Texas, and the assumption outside of a science class is going to be that your beliefs and your thoughts are the product of your culture. It's not necessarily, you know, a very rational and lawful process. Look at ethics, for example, I mean, when you were a kid, did your mom ever nag you to clean up your room?
1: All the time.
2: Of course she did. Mm-hmm. Well, how many mothers nagging how many kids for how many years does it take to create in them a sense of obligation? Well, if you're a good postmodernist, you say, this is the way that all moral standards have evolved. They're just the product of social conditioning. There is an element of truth to that. Think of how many times when you were a kid, adopted a certain attitude, a certain way of thinking, a way of looking at yourself and looking at the world, simply because your mom and dad and everybody else who was close to you had the same kind of thinking. And you think, you know, there's something to this. And then you get here to the university, and they say, in the end, everything that you believe is the product of that kind of process. And you think... kind of disillusioning and frightening to students. If they are used to, on the other hand, thinking things through for themselves, not just in an abstract fashion, but realizing how different sets of ideas produce different sets of actions in your life, they're less likely, in my experience, to be moved by that kind of hard-nosed postmodern analysis.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things um, that we found effective in sharing with those who embrace postmodern ideas is really just to share how it's really self-contradictory. And it's really hard to live out consistently if you're going to buy into uh, that all truth is culturally based or that it's relative or uh, one of those kinds of philosophies thought in the postmodern umbrella.
2: It, in ways, yes, and in ways, no. If I try to point out to somebody the rational, self-contradictory nature of postmodernism. I find often that I'm terribly impressed by my arguments and that no one else is. There's a line in a a poem by Steve Turner, Creed, he says, you know, we believe that there is no truth except for the truth that there is no truth. He's making fun of this this the self-contradictory nature of postmodernism. But if if I point out that rationally, to a student and say, you know, what you're saying here really is is, is kind of self-defeating, it generally doesn't make any difference to the vast majority of them. If, on the other hand, I can point out a little bit more of of what you actually said there, that uh, you're saying this, that you believe this, at the same time, you're living in a very, very different way If they're going to be teachable, that's the point at which they're going to be teachable. They're not concerned about being kind of rationally consistent, but they are concerned about there being some kind of authenticity between what they say they believe and the way that they really live, act, and
1: think about things. Well, Greg, uh, can you give us an example maybe of a dialogue that you've had with someone who embraced really the ideas of postmodernism and how you were able to really open the door to show them well You should really consider what you believe here and really be able to point out some of the weaknesses that they should be considering regarding Their position on truth and relativism and
2: all that. We had uh, a study here on September the 10th 2001 and the only reason that I remember that date is because of what happened next and we were discussing the development, the evolution, as it were, of moral norms. One of the girls in the group was a straightforward postmodernist. Moral notions are just the product of social and linguistic interaction. so that in the end, you don't say that one approach is right and another is wrong. We only say that they're different. And my wife spoke to her and said, you know, well, if that's the case... And when you're faced with something that's evil, you cannot be morally outraged by it. You can only say, that's a different set of moral standards than our own. And she said, you're right. That should be my response. Well, the next morning was 9-11. And she was sitting and watching the planes crashing into the World Trade Center. And she said, it was like somebody hit her over the head. She said, I can't be morally outraged at this. And she got on the phone and she called my wife and and she said, right you're right i was telling myself that in the end that there are no rights and wrongs it's just a matter of social conditioning
0: that I, is amazing that's when amazing. i look
2: at the reality of what's happening here in front of me on television i realize that's not the case this is wrong
1: well that's pretty powerful you know
2: yeah it, it, it is it's yeah. We're talking about
0: the postmodernism, Greg and Pat. Are there any signs that maybe that's going away, and where there's going to be a return to modernism?
2: Well, it's going away academically. If you look around the country now, and you try to find somebody who is kind of promoting in a department of philosophy a postmodern approach to philosophy, there aren't many people anymore. I mean, Richard Rorty was at the University of Virginia up until a few years ago. He was kind of the last, holdout. He's gone now. I cannot think of anybody who is making this argument in philosophical circles academically. Now, having said that, on the street, it's more powerful than ever.
0: Yeah, because of the trickle-down from the academy, and now the academy maybe kind of moves the other way. It's going to take a while. Sure. The street to catch up.
2: People aren't writing a philosophical. Text about it anymore, but they are making movies, and they're writing songs, and they're writing novels, and the heart and soul of this is a postmodern view of, of reality. You
0: know, it's maddening to speak to someone like that very often. It's great when you see the lights come on, like you, this this young lady that you're talking about there. But even Rob Coons, who's also there at UT, said that when he will point out to a student or a faculty member. The self contradictory nature of saying all truth is relative, it's true that there is no truth, and and all those postmodern things, that they'll usually just say, Yeah, how about that? Huh, how about that? And that's their response, as if, So what? Well, big deal. Well, in the scheme of things, you know, so what? It's true. And so at that point, you know, that ends the conversation because they neither acknowledge it or, or don't acknowledge it, they just say, yeah, how about that?
2: Yeah, no, nobody's terribly concerned about being uh, reasonably consistent anymore. That that doesn't seem to, to move many people. Now, if you can find a difference between what someone says they believe and the way that they really look at things and think about things, like this girl on 9-11, and if they're gonna listen that's where they generally listen It's something that Schaefer used to hammer away again over and over and over again one of the tests of the worldview is you have to be able to live it out and if you can't live it out then you need to change your mind that is an argument that that still seems to work mm-hmm. I mean it's not infallible but if anybody if anything is going to move somebody that's what moves
1: them Yeah, Greg you talked about postmodernism are there any other ideas powerful ideas there on the university campus that uh, dominate uh, the culture there
2: well there's still the old modernist monster that, that, that sits around here. Richard Dawkins' book, recently, *The God Delusion*, is very popular with a, a small group of people here. You've got uh, a kind of an old-fashioned rationalistic materialism that is holding its power in certain departments. One of the, the most prominent academics here in Austin is uh, Stephen Weinberg, the physics department. He
1: And so the worldview of naturalism is still the dominant worldview, and would you say that the majority of courses are still taught from this worldview
2: perspective? I tell you, it'll depend very much on the course that you're in. If you're in uh, a scientific course or a technical course, modernism predominates. If you're in a course on language or linguistic or literary analysis, modern languages, French, German, Italian, Spanish, etc., they are going to be hard-nosed postmodernism. I mean, one of the most radical departments on campus here at the University of Texas is the English department. We brought in uh, a fellow here a few years ago, uh, Gene Edward Veith, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yes. Mm -hmm. He teaches at one of the uh, Concordia universities up north to talk about literary criticism. And there was actually a contingent from the English department that showed up at the lecture hall, disrupted the proceedings, and shouted him down. Well, I say that the English department is the most radical department at the university. I'm not kidding.
1: Back when we were going to school, Christianity was one of the views that was seen maybe as false or misguided. Uh, But generally, you know, it was tolerated on the university campus. But now more and more I'm finding there seems to be a hostility towards the theistic or even the Christian worldview position in a lot of areas, as you just described.
2: I'd agree with you. At the same time, I'd say the hostility is different now than it used to be. The uh, hostility that was present when I was studying biochemistry at Tulane University years ago, okay, Christianity is not reasonable, Christianity is not historical, Christianity is not scientific, but it has good moral teachings. Now, what I hear more and more is, well, is Christianity reasonable? Is it scientific? I don't really know. I don't really care is it moral no i will not believe anything that condemns homosexuality or same-sex marriages or any one of a number of other issues socially that people find very offensive it's not that the students at that point see have embraced relativism and they see christianity as worthy of condemnation because it's absolute they see christianity in lots of ways as an inferior moral system. They are as absolute in their convictions as we are in ours. They just see theirs to be superior.
0: Isn't that a funny turn of events? They're actually, they're actually kind of arguing for uh, moral absolutes. Uh, it's almost um, a denial of relativism, and, and the number one uh, argument against the Christian faith that I run into these days on the internet and I go all over the place on there it is not things like the resurrection and uh, the historical reliability of the New Testament and so on it's the atrocities of the Old Testament uh, why did God allow or command the you know the extermination of uh, certain people in judgment and so forth and so they, they see that as a moral, moral inferior act therefore the God of the Bible is morally inferior to modern man
2: it's That's a well. different world than it used to be.
1: Well, Greg, you talked about the intellectual challenges, but you also mentioned that there are a lot of moral challenges on a university campus. Uh, describe some of them for us.
2: Well, some of the uh, moral challenges aren't any different now than they were when I was there. We still have drugs, we still have sex, and we still have popular music and uh, the things in which it is consumed. What has changed is that... Uh, mainstream than they would have been considered 30 years ago. The problem that I deal with most often for men on campus here at UT is internet pornography. 30 years ago, you had to walk into the drugstore and be willing to buy a Playboy and then carry it back to your room. Now, you can sit alone in your room on Friday evening and turn on the computer and no one else will know. And it doesn't cost you anything at all. Uh, It's so
0: accessible. It's, is, it's not always been this accessible you used to have to go across the railroad tracks
2: yep the very fact that it's so accessible and so private makes it way too easy. This is a huge problem even for uh, lots of Christian guys
1: yeah Greg, you bring up a good point you know I was just speaking with some students who graduated from the university a few years ago and you know we we're just having an open Honest conversation, and I was surprised. Every one of them in that room was struggling with pornography, and it began when they were on the university campus.
2: And once you get hooked on it, it's it's really hard to break. They need accountability. They need to put the accountability software on their on their own computer, so that someone is going to be seeing what they see all the time. They need counseling. Someone who can actually sit down with them on a regular basis and help them work through the habits physically and mentally, that actually reinforce this kind of behavior. And and they need somebody uh, that they can be accountable to that they are not willing to lie to, someone that they care about enough that they will actually tell the truth to. There are guys that I've actually encouraged to uh, to get lie detector tests on a regular basis because the urge to indulge in this kind of behavior is so strong they have a hard time being honest about it, even with somebody that they, they would like to impress or like to be honest
1: with. Right. You know, Greg, uh, from the moment a student arrives on the public university, there seems to be a process in which there's a systematic breakdown of their traditional moral values. I talk to a lot of students who go to orientation, and they're there to watch a skit. And the skit is really teaching on tolerance. I remember one person was describing to me this skit. There were four people in a room. And you had one person coming out of the closet, announcing that they were gay. And then another one, she was, a, I think, a nymphomaniac. And another one who was a partier. And another one who was a Zen Buddhist. And then then you had the intolerant Christian who was running around condemning everybody. And the whole point of the entire skit was, hey, we're here at college. You need to be open-minded open to other lifestyles, accept other lifestyles, accept other ideas. The worst thing you can do is to be an intolerant person and hold to some kind of traditional moral value. And there seems to be a breakdown right from the get-go.
2: Intolerant. To call somebody intolerant is to question their intelligence, to question their goodness, and to question their integrity. It's just sort of the worst label you can hang on somebody on campus now. We do a seminar every semester on tolerance as a result. Uh, the, the title of the seminar is called, Are Christians Intolerant? And, you know, we toss out a lot of situations, ask a lot of questions, try to get people to think about it themselves, and, and the point of the seminar is to say, now, what is tolerance really? Tolerance used to be how you treat someone you disagree with. If you don't disagree with them, you're not tolerating them, you're either indifferent to what they think, or you're on board. If you don't disagree, it's not a matter of tolerance at all. Now, tolerance has become a synonym for relativism. Tolerance has to do with what you think and what you say about what someone else believes. The very definition of tolerance has changed over the years. And what we try to do is to say, now, as believers, As followers of Jesus Christ, what are we called to? The implication in the modern setting is the more certain I am of my own beliefs, the less tolerant I'm going to be. It's impossible to have certainty and tolerance at the same time. And then I turn around and say, now, is that so? The bottom line in tolerance is absolutely, how I treat somebody else, and then I say, if I have no idea of what the truth is, am I in any way obliged to treat them well? And then, generally, students have a, you know, they'll, they'll chew on that for a little while and say, well, yeah, if, if none of us is right and none of us is wrong, doesn't that mean that I should just sort of treat everybody I turn around and say, well, if none of us is right and none of us is wrong, why not take advantage of them in every way that I can if it benefits me? I have a friend who is uh, working in northern India with Hindus. Now, Hindus are not people who believe that their perspective is uniquely right. He is dealing with people from different social classes and trying to bring them together to discuss social and economic problems. And he said the biggest obstacle that he has to bringing people together to talk is this belief that in the end, there's no truth. Not us can know it. So why should we even bother talking about it? I'm going to do the best I can to make sure that I win and that they lose. And what you're suggesting that I do is stupid. Then I turn around and say, okay now, as believers, are we called... Tolerate anybody. The word's not used in the New Testament. We are called to love people that we disagree with, to treat them well, even and especially when we disagree with them, because we know the truth that they are made in the image of God and they are worthy of that kind of treatment and respect, even if we do disagree with them. It is because of my convictions as a Christian, that I treat people well that I disagree with. And and that really is more than just tolerance. Uh, as I said, the, the New Testament word that's used is love.
1: That's very well put, Greg. Unfortunately, we're going to have to end our time here, but Greg will be back with us next week as we talk about preparing our Christian students for the university campus. So, Greg, thanks for being with us this week. We look forward to talking with you next week. My pleasure, Pat.
0: Thanks for having me. We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerin on this timely topic, and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, Apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few.
1: There's a new feature on our website called iShows where you can download each individual show for just 250 dollars on our website EvidenceAndAnswers.org. Just like you download a song on iTunes, these are iShows that you can download each individual show you want and we've got some of the top scholars on there.
0: Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. This has been Kevin Harris. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pad Sukarin. God bless and thanks so much for listening. EvidenceandAnswers.org